Guys, I'm super enthusiastic today to talk about the topic of today. We are in the episode, Is Jesus Coming Back? Part 5. And today I am exploring something very, very crucial to the book of Revelation. And it's a very difficult one to understand. But I found a great article that has very in-depth research that supports everything that I am about to tell you. When I first started looking into preterism and started working with Sean McCraney and the crew over at campus, I was asked a question by this youth pastor who will remain unnamed. Uh, what about the Antichrist? And I, then I wasn't, I wasn't sure what the preterist explanation was. I become more and more familiar with it. And when preparing for this podcast episode, I stumbled upon a website called rivalnations.org, which I encourage everyone to check out because it is excellent. Every single article that I've read from them, which have been about five, uh, has been absolutely excellent, very in-depth, and very easy to read. So the first question of two questions that we are going to answer today are, who are the beasts which are described in, in Revelation? And secondly, what does the number 666 represent in the whole flow of the full preterist position? So I'm going to read to you directly from this article, because my understanding still isn't uh, great on it, uh, what it says here. And first, it, the first thing this article does in this section, Who Are the Beast? And I will have this linked in the description, by the way, so you can read it yourself. Is from Revelation 17, 9 through 10. This calls for a mind of wisdom. There are seven heads. The seven heads are seven hills on which the great prostitute sits. There are no there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. Now it, it's very difficult. To read Revelation, very poetic, very symbolic, and just the general direct translation into English is very difficult to read, so stick with me. It goes on for the explanation of this. The imagery of the beast has a nature of fluidity to it in John's writing. Sometimes it seems to describe a person or multiple people. Other times it seems to describe a nation. Though much of church history, people have understood the beast in Revelation 13 and 17 to refer to Rome and Emperor Nero. Rome was widely known as the city on seven hills, or as it was called in iniquity, antiquity, I believe that's it, the septimonium connecting it with Revelation 17.9, John describes the great prostitute as sitting on seven heads, which are the seven hills uh, of Rome. But John also says there are seven kings. So he has already deciphered some of his symbolic language already for us. He tells us that of seven kings, five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. But when does it, uh, but when it does, it will be just for a little while. Here is how that lines up with Rome's history and his first seven, seven emperors. And this, uh, ladies and gentlemen, absolutely blew my mind away how directly it all fits in with, uh, with history that has already happened. So the five emperors that have fallen are, of course, the, Ju the Julius Roman emperors, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, and Claudius. Um, the one is, is obviously Nero. And uh, not yet to come, but then only for a little while, is Galba. I hope I'm saying that right. 
uh, which only reigned for six months. If John is describing the first seven emperors of Rome, then Nero would be the king who is the fact that his successor, Galba, only remained emperor for six months lends a lot of credibility to this theory. But there is a lot more to consider. Does Nero fit the description of the beast? And we'll go ahead and scroll down here to the next section of the article. And it says uh, Nero's full actual name. It's too long and complicated for me to read right now. You can research it yourself. More commonly known as his adoptive name, Nero stands in the sixth spot in the line of Roman kings. That John the Revelator mentions in his description of the beast. Nero is considered by historians to be a complete psychopath. In AD 64, he burnt down a third of Rome and blamed it on Christians, launching a nationwide per persecution campaign against him. Nero was notorious for um, being grotesquely violent. He murdered his own family members, including his parents, brother, and aunt. He kicked uh, his, his pregnant wife to death. He married a boy named uh, Sporus and castrated him. He enjoyed homosexual rape and torture. His bizarre and perverted lust for violence was noted by historian Setonius, who wrote that Nero even devised a kind of game in which, covered with the skin of some wild animal, he was let loose from a cage and attacked the genitals of men and women who were bound to stakes. As described by ancient historians, Nero is a singular, uh, singularly a cruel and unrestrained man of evil. Many ancient writers cite the bestial character of Nero. Uh, and it goes on to describe how evil Nero is. And most of us know this general information. It goes down to mention Revelation 13, 5. The beast was giving a mouth to other proud words and blasphemies and exercised its authority for 42 months. John claims that the beast exercised its authority for 42 months, but Nero reigned for 164 months. At first glance, it seems that Nero doesn't fit Revelation's description. But what if John is referring specifically to the beast's power to wage war against God's holy people and conquer them? Revelation 13.7. Nero started his persecution of Christians about the time, the latter part of November AD 64. The intense persecution of the early church ended with Nero's life. Nero's madness would eventually lead to suicide on the 9th of June uh, AD 68. This means that the perse persecution lasted three and a half years, years or 42 months. This fits John's description perfectly. Again, mind blown from this. It is an absolute direct um, fulfillment of John's prophecy. Uh, and then the article goes on to talk about the death and resurrection of Rome. Revelation claims that if anyone kills with the sword with the sword they will be killed uh revelation 13 10 nero killed with the sword and was killed by the sword his own nero was the last of the julio claudian line of emperors the line ended and it would have seemed symbolically as if the head of the empire had been wounded to death immediately after nero's suicide due to newly created power power vacuum the roman empire had, was hurled into civil world wars of horrible ferocity and dramatic proportions. These civil wars would strike everyone as being the very death throes of Rome. Before the world's startled eyes, the seven-headed beast Rome was toppling to its death, and its six-head Nero was mortally wounded with the sword. Revelation 13.3 says, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. 
the year following Nero's death was historically being called the year of the four emperors. Uh, Galba reigned seven months and was killed. Uh, the and was killed. The Praetorian Guard. Otho took his place, but killed himself three months later. Vitellius would become emperor for eight months before being killed by his own soldiers. Vespasian took the throne next and would reign 10 years before dying of natural causes. But during the unrest of AD 69, many thought the Roman Empire was about to die. This was a very painful year for Rome, and many thought the beasts of the Roman Empire had been wounded unto death. This was the most tumultuous time in Roman history so far, but Rome was a finish in what had appeared to be a miraculous turnaround. The empire was revived, revived under um, Vespasian, then Titus. When they came into power, they established the uh, Flavian dynasty of Caesars. Instead of the beast dying, it was resurrected. The beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. All right, so that fully explains the, well, at least mostly explains the whole things of, about the beast in Revelation. Again, research it more yourself. Uh, there's a lot more that needs to be explained, a lot more to be looked at. This is just a general or overview, as I always do. Now, to get to something even more complicated, I should say, and more interesting, the mark on the hands and foreheads. Revelation 13, 16 through 17 said, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark. And the article makes this case, which is very uh, interesting to me. Since there is a lot of Old Testament symbolism used as code in Revelation, we should look there first for any references to a mark on hands or foreheads. Typically, Scripture, the right hand, is a symbolic term used to denote a position of power. The Lord is said to be at one's right hand, cites several scriptures. So the right hand is symbolic for uh, who your Lord is, who you obey and have allegiance to. The right hand symbolizes the power of God and specifically the power of Jesus. Jesus is to be at the right hand of the Father. The combination of a seal sign mark on the hand and forehead is also seen numerous times in Scripture. Exodus 13, 16, it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And Deuteronomy 6, 8 says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them uh, on your foreheads. This is from the Great Shema. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. I encourage you to go look at it. Continues on to say, the mark of the beast isn't the only mark in Revelation either. In contrast to the mark of the beast, in chapter 9, we read about the mark of God. Revelation 9, 4 says, and they were hurt only the men who did not have the mark of God on their foreheads. The concept of marking is a spiritual metaphor of ownership. For example, Paul talks about those marked by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. Revelation is comparing and contrasting those owned by the beast with those owned by God. There are There is no reason to interpret the mark as literal when we don't interpret the beast to be literal animal with seven heads. Even if you do want to take the mark literally, as some do, there are more clues that may help us understand what the mark is. So, in Revelation, ladies and gentlemen, it talks about, obviously, as I just read earlier, uh, about how this mark would allow you to be able to buy yourself. Now, in today's world, 
evangelical Christians all the time claim that this mark is going to be a microchip. It's going to be one world order, etc. Um, and it's going to be very obvious to watch out for. But what I'm about to read you is something quite, um, I guess, mind-blowing about the way we... And it totally changes the way you read scripture in a good way, I say. And it allows you to look at how God works through literal and true history. So, needed to buy and sell. While the word mark clearly has symbolic meaning, what if it had also has literal meaning? After all, John says that his uh, com contemporaries were... Uh, unable to buy or sell without his mark, this mark. The word for mark in the Greek is uh, char chargamo. Uh, I'm not good at reading Greek, so forgive me. Which means engraved, attached, or imprinted. Around the time that Revelation was written, the Roman currencies being used had engravings of Caesar upon them, Mark 12, 16. During the reign of Nero, his portrait appeared on coins appearing like the god Apollo, often inscribed the word son of God, I repeat, often inscribed with the word son of God. These are talking about the coins at that time when Nero was emperor to John as a former Jew, which was considered blasphemous to claim to be God right there. It is all right there for us, ladies and gentlemen, that God fulfilled everything that he said he was going to do. Right there. And look, I am not making stuff up. You can check all of this for yourselves. And when you read scripture from a past fulfilled point of view, the whole world opens up to you. Because when you realize that God did everything he said he was going to do in his word, that gives you more faith than anything that a futurist can give you. It fits directly with the scripture. Go back to our past episodes. We went through several end-time prophecies in the New Testament and showing how, through a contextual reading, it was applied to the first century. Jesus' second coming was supposed to be in the first century, not to us. Scripture-backed. It is not me making it up. You can go to Matthew 24. This generation, not me saying it. You can go to... um to other parts of the Gospels. You will not have gone through all the cities before the Son of Man returns. Some of you among, uh, will not have tasted death until the Son of Man comes, etc., 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 etc. It is all in there. Christ fulfilled it all. Continuing with this, everyone rich and poor, slave and free, had to use this Roman currency marked with the image of Nero. Rome openly proclaimed that its rulers and Caesars were divine gods or sons of God. All those under jurics, the jurisdiction of Rome, such as the early church, were required by law to publicly proclaim their allegiance to Caesar by burning a pinch of incense and declaring Caesar is Lord upon compliance with this law. The people were given a papyrus document called uh, Libius, of which they were required to present with uh, when either stopped by Roman police or attempting to engage in commerce in the Roman marketplace, increasing the difficulty of buying or selling without the smart. What's more, worshiping or non-worshiping the not worshiping the empire 
and its Caesar was quickly becoming the dividing line between the people who were considered acceptable in the community and the people who weren't. Many official and local officials introduced a daily formal requirement that unless you offer the proper tribute to Rome, you weren't even allowed to go through the market gates. This would be the event, the equivalent of having to pledge your allegiance to the American flag before going into the grocery store. Now, to give you some context to what they're saying here, this website routinely goes against this uh, Christian patriotism for the United States, which I, I partially agree with and some things that they say I disagree with. Uh, but that's besides the point. After homage was paid to the emperor and its king, ashes were placed on the hand or the forehead of the individual and entrance into the marketplace was permitted. This is called taking the mark. Since Christians declared that Jesus was war Lord, meaning that anyone else would um, was not taking the mark as a sign of betrayal against God. Followers of Jesus were faced with a difficult choice. Stay true to the lamb and risking losing your livelihood or offer your allegiance to the beast and everything will be all right. So to summarize what we've gone through so far, and we have one more section of this article uh, to go through. We have established that the, the two beasts, can be represented in several different ways, each pertaining to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire being the seven different heads of the beast, Nero being um, part of that, uh, and many con predators consider the Antichrist. And then the second beast being uh, the emperors after, uh, such as Vespasian is a common knowledge. And it's something I would agree with since we will get into in a future episode on how Vespasian did miracles, which will be something interesting to look at. So going to the number 666, Revelation 13, 17 through 18 tells us that unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has the insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Again, Revelation 13, 17, 17 through 18. The mark is required to buy and, uh, and sell has a clear meaning. The mark of the beast is the name of a man represented by a number, 666. The mark is the number 666, and John's uh, readers were told to calculate it. This number may be key to understanding who the beast is. So let's talk about numbers and how they were used in the first century. In ancient days, alphabets served two purposes. The first purpose was to create words, but secondly, the letters were also assigning numerical value. You may have already heard the Roman numerals such as I, I equals V, 5, X, 10, and so on. Most ancient languages at the time functioned in the same way. This is how John's Mark of the Beast, who is a man, can be both a name, word, and a number. Because of the twofold function of letters, numerical sight. Uh, and cytograms were fairly common in antiquity. Among the Greeks, it was called eso, eso, I'm going to sound stupid trying to say this, so let's skip over it. You can read the article yourself. Among the Jews, it was called grim, another word I can't pronounce. Any given name or word could be reduced to its numerical equivalent by adding up the mathematical value of all of the, the letters of the name. For example, a cryptogram discovered in the excavations from Pompeii, which was buried by a volcanic 
eruption in 79 AD. The Greek, uh, in the Greek inscription written was Philo as Arthemus Feme. We'll, we'll pretend I did not just try and read that. And the literal translation of it is, I love her whose number is 545, 545. This, of course, is just one interesting example of countless that can be found in Hellenistic and rabbinic li literature. If we were to take Nero's name in Greek and add up the letters to its name, it adds up to 1005. That doesn't quite match 666. But remember, John was a political prisoner in the custody of Greek-speaking Romans. It would have been wiser for him to use another language like Hebrew, which was much less commonly known at the time. In Hebrew, Nero's name, uh, which it says right there, then when translated into English letters, is N-R-W-N-Q-S-R. This is a way it was found to be spelled in in Hebrew and the Talmud and other rabbinical writings. When converted to numbers, Nero's name adds up to exactly 666. And it gives a chart representing um, those numbers. And it says, if that isn't convincing enough, there is an intriguing textual variant that appeared very early in Revelation's manuscript history. These variants rendered the mark of the beast number as 616 rather than 666. Many highly respected scholars believe that this change was intentional rather than due to scribal error. This change to 616 occurred when the Bible was being copied in Latin and appears in other historical writings in Latin then from, uh, form Nero Caesar adds up to 616 instead of 666. This change allowed for the cryptogram to be deciphered by contemporary Christians whose main language is Latin. Early Christians wanted their brothers, brothers and sisters to know who the beast was and were willing to update the Bible in order to do that. And the, uh, I, I guess I'm going to go ahead and read this since it's pertaining to what we're talking about, following the beast. While John and his first readers identified the beast with Rome, Nero, and other Caesars, the, the woman who sat upon them was called Babylon the Great. Throughout scripture, Babylon is used as an archetype for human government and the evils of powerful empires. John is saying that what all, it, what all his readers already knew, Rome was another Babylon. Today, we have to realize that just as Babylon was the world's most powerful empire, Rome was the world's most powerful empire. America is the world's most powerful empire. Revelation is, first and foremost, a critique of empire. America is the newest Babylon, and Revelation calls us out of it. And the article, I don't think, and this is just me going out on a limb here, is saying that these same things are going to happen to America in the same context of Revelation, but it's just giving a, a, a contextual comparison to John's feelings on empires. Revelation 18, 2 through 5 says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Come out for her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that uh, 
that there is a new nation where God is king. This nation is in opposition to Babylon. Scripture claims that the empire, like America, are ruled by Satan. The letter we call the book uh, of Revelation was and is a promise to God's people that Jesus will be victorious over empire. Our baptism is a sign of our new citizenship, God's nation, and our exodus out of Babylon. The kingdom of God frees us from empires like America that kills thousands of innocent people daily. By focusing on barcodes, microchips, and, and possible one-world currencies, we miss the beast right in front of us. Babylon is no more. Egypt is no more. Persia is no more. Greece is no more. Rome is no more. One day, America will be no more. Do not be owned by the beast. Do not pledge allegiance to it. And in doing so, take its uh, mark. Declare that Babylon has fallen. Come out of her, my people. This last uh, paragraph or two, I have some disagreements on. Uh, I do not think that revelation in any sort of way is applied uh, to us today. I could be wrong on that, but in pre my present knowledge, I don't think it is. So I don't necessarily see it as an empire-hating book. I do think it goes directly against the Roman Empire because of its judgment on, on the Christian community at that time. And that's just my opinion. You can uh decipher your own opinion it's been a long episode uh jam-packed full of information i read it as fast as i could some of you probably your heads are spinning remember the link is in the description go check out christian anarchy today we just released a fantastic episode did jesus pay for the sins of the world you may think so but does your theology really support that guys we have so many great things coming out after we finish the jesus already came back series we are gonna go and talk about the theology of hell and you and we're gonna go to the original greek and decipher it for you ladies and gentlemen we have fantastic things coming to the ministry keep us in prayer and keep an open mind and test all things um in season five of the podcast which will be coming out i think in a month or two uh, we'll start doing that. We are going back to apologetics, and like we did in season one and part of season two, I want to give a new perspective, a new approach, maybe a little less angry side of me. We'll see what happens and continue bringing people unto Christ and to salvation so that you can have eternal life with Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We will see you here Sunday. This is Common Sense Christianity.